Our scripture text for the sermon is Romans 11, verses 1 through 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appears to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray together. Father, I remember over a year ago now that in preaching on similarly hard things, you brought from death to life a young couple in this church. And I am therefore hopeful tonight that though we deal with a very weighty matter, you will be work working savingly, humbling, teaching, reproving and correcting, training in righteousness, strengthening us for every good work in ways we don't even understand. Oh, we want to be a humble people under your mighty hand and what a sovereign hand it is according to this text. Forbid that there would be any sense of elitism in our understanding of the doctrine of election. Forbid that there would be any pride in it, any one-upmanship, any boasting in self or our kind, but rather in all lowliness and brokenness, may we prove our calling and our election by loving all peoples with a self-sacrificing compassion and love. I ask that you would do exceedingly and abundantly beyond everything that I'm able to say and surely beyond everything I'm able to do unless you build the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We rise up early and go late to bed in vain unless you come now and do the work of saving and purifying and humbling and reconciling and healing and emboldening 
and exalting Christ. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. What is revealed about God now and his ways in these verses is very serious and very weighty. And uh, it's light years removed from early morning banter on the radio. It is not even in the same world, it seems, as the world of entertainment. It's never mentioned ever, ever on television. It scarcely turns up in any manuals of church growth or any popular assessments of culture in America today. But if it's true, what we read here in verses 7 through 10, it affects all of these. And so I plead with you to listen and to pray for a heart that's teachable, not by me, but by the Holy Spirit, according to his word. These are really, really weighty matters. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Let's just stop there and get that clear. Let's see it in relationship to the preceding two verses last week. Verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. In other words, God has seen to it in Elijah's day and now in Paul's day that there is a remnant of believing people among Israel. And he stresses it's by grace. Israel as a whole has evidently not been believing But some have believed in the Messiah and been justified, saved from sin and hell. So when it says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. We now know that what it was seeking was life. What it was seeking was fulfillment of the law according to the election of grace or the remnant was chosen. You see that in verse 5? And this choosing was by grace. The remnant hadn't done anything to deserve being chosen. That's what we talked about last time. And then verse 6 underlines that. If this election is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Which now leaves the reader with a picture in his head that's, for some of them, breathtakingly problematical. The picture is God chose Israel in the days of Abraham. He just picked him out of Ur of the Chaldees. You're mine. Through you I will bless the world. I will work with you. And and through the history of Abraham's descendants, he made covenants and he made promises that there would be a wonderful future for this people. And here Paul is saying a remnant, a remnant is saved by grace. And so 
the picture left is, what about all the rest, Paul? What are you saying? See, a remnant, there's just a remnant. I mean, God chose Israel. What are you saying, Paul? Which brings us now to verse 7. What then? What are you saying? Paul answers, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. In other words, it was seeking to fulfill the law. It was seeking to get right with God. It was seeking to have eternal life. And it has rejected the Messiah and therefore is lost and cut off from Christ. We've seen all that in chapter 9 and 10. The elect, I'm in the middle of verse 7 now, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, that's a tremendously important statement for understanding how salvation works. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Obtained what? Obtained faith, justification, eternal life, membership in the Remnant, verse 5, at the present time, there is a saved remnant chosen. Now, there's the word chosen that turns up here in verse 7 again. The elect, that is the chosen, obtained it. And verse 5 said, there is a remnant chosen. So being the remnant is what they obtained. Being the saved, justified, redeemed remnant is owing to being chosen. What then, Paul, of the rest? If the remnant exists because of election, what are you saying, Paul, about the rest? Verse 7, the rest were hardened. Now, just think of this language for a moment, even before we begin to explain it. Let's just think about the language for a moment and how Unusual it is in American evangelicalism. I mean, who talks this way? The elect obtained it, the rest were hardened. Does anybody say that? Where in the world is such language ever used? If we were to write this text, you know how we would write it. We would write it like this. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The believers obtained it, and the rest refused to believe. That's the way we'd write it. And we'd write it that way because that's true, biblically true. But that's not what this text says. And so when I, when I come to a text like this as a pastor preaching my way through a book like Romans, I say, what am I supposed to do with this? And I'll tell you what I feel, the, the bottom line feeling. I have, I, have, I have other feelings above the bottom line. <laughs> they have to get pushed aside. The bottom line feeling is God loves Bethlehem Baptist Church and the people who come here. God inspired Paul to reveal this sentence to us. Therefore, it's good for us. That's my bottom line feeling. Whatever else I may feel, that's the bottom. God inspired the Bible. This is in the Bible. 
God means, therefore, for me to read this. Therefore, it's good for me to read it. Now, I don't know whether I'm going to continue with this next Sunday or not. I'm up in the air. But if I continue next Sunday, what I'm going to do is come back and and talk about some of the issues surrounding what it means to be a fallible, sinful, finite knower. Like me and you. We know things that are revealed to us in the Bible. But we are sinful and we're finite, we're fallible, and therefore we can make hash of a lot of true things that are revealed to us as sinners and fallible and finite. What then are we to do as knowers of truth that is sometimes complex and hard and offensive? I'll work with that a little bit next uh, week with you if if the Lord so leads. I have three questions to ask of this sentence. One, what is hardening? Two, when did it happen? Three, what's the basis of it? And that's today's message. Number one, what is hardening? What's this hardening? Now, the explanation... And the answer for all three of these come in the following verses, 8 through 10. They are all quotations from the Old Testament. Isaiah 29.10, Deuteronomy 29.4, and Psalm 69.22 to 23. You don't need to look those up. I'll try to go slow enough so that you can ponder them along the way. Let me read these verses And you be answering in your own minds, if you can, the questions, what is it? When did it happen? And what's the basis for it, this hardening? Because that's why these verses are here. Paul has just said the explanation of the rest is they were hardened. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, now he quotes the Psalm 69, which is a a psalm of cursing and sometimes called the imprecatory psalms where curses are called down. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap. He's talking about Israel Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So what's the answer to the first question? What is hardening? Well, I think verse 8 is pretty plain. God gave them a spirit of stupor. That is a spirit of numbness, insensitivity. And the result was being spiritually blind and deaf. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear. So they were physically able to see and physically able to hear. But when they heard about God, when they heard about spiritual things, they heard them as foolishness. They were deaf to beauty. Deaf to reality, 
All they heard with their physical ears and their natural mind was, that's stupid. That's not nearly as much fun as TV. It's not nearly as cool as sports, etc., etc., etc. That's what the that's what the mind did. Now in verse 9, he quotes Psalm 69 to unpack this further. And there's some very interesting things here. I hope you'll listen carefully to Psalm 69. Paul takes to be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. In other words, the things that David spoke about his enemies, Paul sees as the son of David, Jesus Christ, experiencing from his enemies. You can see that in at least three ways. For example, zeal for your house has consumed me. Psalm 69, 9 which Jesus applied to himself or the disciples applied to him in John 12, John 2, verse 12, when he cleansed the temple. He quoted, they quoted that psalm as applying to Jesus. Or the second part of that verse, 69.9, the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. And Paul quotes that in Romans 15:3 as applying to Jesus. It was David saying that it was experienced his experience. Or just before these verses that he quotes, they gave me poison for my food and my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. And Luke 23:36 applies that to Jesus on the cross as they gave sour wine. To Jesus. So as as the biblical writers looked at Psalm 69 with all of its cursings being called down, they stepped back and they saw David as a type of the son of David to come. And they saw how he was being treated so badly and how in the name of God, he was saying judgment will come upon those who are doing that. Now, Jesus is fulfilling. He's filling up that original experience in his Experience and those curses then wind up in verse 9 and 10 in relationship to Israel surrounding the son of David. So let's see what they say. Verse 9, David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Now, what do you think table stands for here? What's the point of talking about a table becoming a stumbling? How do you stumble over your dining room table? How do you, how does your dining room table become a trap for you? Got any ideas? Well, here's mine. And I'm not alone in this. I think sitting around a table with a meal on it is simply a picture of absolute normalcy. A lot of good things on the table, food, pleasures about to happen as you get ready to eat, fellowship around the table. And this text is saying hardening, hardening will involve the misuse of that food, that table, that fellowship, so that it becomes a snare, a trap, a stumbling block. And you don't have to think very long from your own experience how that works. Food a problem anywhere? 60% of the people in America are overweight. Food's a huge problem. Camaraderie can be used for good or ill. 
And you don't have to leave it at food. Just the, just the generalized good gifts of God. Food's a good thing. Sex is a good thing. Success in business is a good thing. And on and on, the list of common graces go. And what hardening means is that we take them and they become our idols, our passions, the pleasures that we get from them replace the pleasure we should be getting from God and we stumble over them. That's part of the hardening experience. Verse 10. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. These, these are God's inspired curses on the enemy of David and then the son of David. This is a foreseeing of what the hardening would look like. And here the hardening repeats. Yes, it will involve blindness. We've seen that already in verse nine. But here's this new phrase, bend their backs forever. What's that? What would a bent back signify? Probably a heavy burden, a load to carry, some weight that you are cursed to bear forever. Now, there's a connection between this back in chapter 9 where Paul says that Israel did not attain what it sought for. Why did they not attain it? Because they sought for it as though it were by works. When it was not by works, but by faith. And so if I bring that in as an analogy of how they missed it here and think works, I think this is very interesting. You have two pictures. You have a very simple table setting with lots of pleasures, a normal life all misused and turned into idolatry as you take more pleasure in God's gifts than in God. And then you have another picture of a man bent over trying to carry a heavy load. And I hope I'm not pushing it too far to say there are two ways that you can be hardened against God. Two ways you can experience rebellion against God. One would be a sensuous and sensual way and the other would be a legalistic way. This person over here, he, he looks like he doesn't go to church and he looks like he, he's outside the religious influences. This person over here is squeaky clean and hell bound because he's working for God, carrying a heavy load, thinking that he could turn grace into a list of do's and don'ts, which if he performs them, God will be indebted to put him right, and that'll bend your back forever. So whether the hardening expresses itself in lechery and sensuality and lawlessness, or whether it expresses itself in nice moralism and squeaky clean religiosity and rule-keeping all to impress God while you exert your sovereign willpower to commend yourself to him. Either way, it's hardness. It's hardening. So that's my answer to the question, what is it? It's spiritual numbness. It's blindness and deafness. Spiritually, it's turning God's good gifts into God-replacing 
pleasures, God replacing, not God giving, but God replacing pleasures. And it's God's law turned into self-reliant labor to commend yourself to him by works. And that will bend your back forever. Now, here's the second question. When did this happen, this hardening? The key answer is in verse 8, and it's in the phrase, to this very day. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. In other words, it's been going on for a long time and is still going on in Paul's day. This is a quotation from 1,400 years earlier. Moses said this. Let me read you Deuteronomy 29.4. To this day. So it's going on earlier than 1,400 years ago. To this day. The Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. In other words, he has, in Moses' day, left the people to their deafness and blindness. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see. Deuteronomy 29, 4. So to Moses' day and now to Paul's day, it's been happening now, there's, a, there's another interesting step in this. Turn with me to chapter 11, verse 25, if you want to ask, how long is this going to last? Romans 11:25. how long will the rest of Israel be hardened? Verse 25 of Romans 11. He's talking to us Gentiles here, and oh, how important it is for us to be rebuked like this repeatedly. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. Because you've been grafted in where Israel once was. You're benefiting from all the covenants and promises. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening. Now, there it is. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. And then here's this awesomely hopeful word. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And when we get here, I'm going to argue that until means the hardening will be taken away. There's coming a day when this statement, the rest will be hardened or the rest are hardened, will no longer be able to be spoken. That day's coming. So the answer, when did it happen, is at least this, it's been happening all the way along, it seems, in Israel's history. There's always been a remnant, and there's always been those who have been hardened. And it will be so until the full number of the Gentiles come in. That means until world evangelization reaches the point that God means for it to reach. Which is why, by the way, among other reasons, we are such a mission-driven church. There's a plan that's unfolding. It is unspeakable and unsearchable and full of glory. And we get to be a part of pressing toward the consummation with all our might. And may it happen in our day. 
that all the Gentiles whom God ordains to gather in will be gathered in, then the hardening, the veil will be lifted. Therefore, an exhortation before I go to point three. How then should you live in view of this? You should live the way Paul lives. Chapter 9, verse 3. Would to God I could take their place. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, I have unceasing anguish and a broken heart. That's chapter 9, verse 3. Then chapter 10, verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. And very soon, in a week or two, we'll go to chapter 11. What is it? 13 or 14. I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles so as to make my kinsmen jealous. If by any means I might save some. That's the way we should live. Oh, Bethlehem. If we take this doctrine of election and become elitist and separatist and withdrawn from a needy, perishing, dying world. How wicked. We will be. Let us let biblical teaching have biblical effect. Third question. What's the basis for this hardening? This is the hardest question, isn't it? What's the basis for this hardening? Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened The elect obtained it. Last week, from verses 5 and 6, I tried to show that that obtaining, the elect obtained faith, the elect obtained participation in the remnant, the elect obtained justification, life, forgiveness, redemption, salvation, hope of everlasting joy with God, the elect obtained it. I tried to argue that was all of grace. And not owing to anything in us at all. The non-elect, the non-chosen, those who Paul says here are hardened, are not passed over because they are worse than the elect. And the chosen are not chosen because they are better than those who are hardened. Otherwise, Grace would no longer be grace. John Piper was not rescued from my unbelief because I am better than any Jewish person in Minneapolis or any Gentile person. And if you think that your membership in Christ, that your being justified and being part of God's elect family is owing to something that you did to earn it, then you nullify the grace of God. We were rescued from unbelief by sovereign grace alone. So then, how shall we describe the basis of the hardening? If all of that is true, if the election is so gracious and free, and I can point to nothing in me that caused God to put his favor upon me in election. How shall we describe the basis of of the of hardening? That's a really hard question. You feel the hardness of that question? 
because we're walking on the edge of some of the deepest, weightiest mysteries in the universe here. So here with mercy and here critically and here with biblical assessment and here uh, humbly. I think to answer the question how we describe the basis of the hardening is that we must always say two things. We must always stress the absolute freedom of God in what he does in electing and hardening. And the other is we must always stress the guilt and the accountability of all men. Now, let me try to unpack that for a minute, show you what I mean. I'm going to always in this pulpit while I see things the way I see them and while I'm part of this eldership, because I think if I saw things differently, they would call me to account given the agreement we have in these things. First, in the act of hardening, God is free and is not ultimately constrained by any act or any condition of man outside himself, outside God. We saw this in Romans 9. This is the very issue. We said, we saw God's glory depends on his freedom. If God is not free, that means free from any constraint outside himself in determining ultimately what he does, he's not glorious. That's what we argued in Romans 9 from verses like these. Romans 9.15, quoting God from the Old Testament. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then he infers this. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. And that's Paul's effort to stress freedom. God is free. Maybe next week, if we have time, I'll ask you to contemplate with me the horrifying implications of believing that human beings can control the decisions of God ultimately. I'll ask you to think about that with me if we can move that way next Sunday. So the first thing we say about the basis of hardening is that God is not finally or ultimately constrained by human willing. We do not provide the ultimate decisive causes for the actions of God. God does. That's what it means for God to be God and God to be all glorious. Here's the second thing that always has to be said when you reckon with the nature and basis of hardening. Namely, Something that's in a word in verse 9 that I intentionally skipped so that I would come back to it. Maybe you wondered why. Let's read verse 9. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and, here's the word, a retribution for them. Hmm. Retribution. So in describing the dynamics of hardening... In describing the experience of hardenedness, he says 
it's like a retribution. Well, retribution means you're being punished for something. 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 Retribution gets at guilt. Retribution gets at accountability. Right? The point is, they deserved that the snare and the trap and the stumbling be experienced as hardening. Paul really means to reckon in the hardening with real guilt and real punishment. This is why a lot of people who write on this text use the phrase judicial hardening, meaning that the hardening has in it judgment, retribution, which implies accountability, responsibility. Here's where you can see it in uh, chapter 11, verse 20. He's talking about Israel, the rest of them, who are not still grafted into the branch of the covenant and not saved, but they're broken off. Look what it says in verse 20 of Romans 11. They were broken off because of their unbelief. You stand fast through faith. So there you see the two poles that we as an eldership at Bethlehem, all 25 of us, embrace. God is absolutely free from constraint or control or decisive ultimate influence from the human side. He is free and is dictated in what he does by his counsel, will, and wisdom. And men, human beings are guilty, responsible, so that when they come into judgment, finally, no injustice will have been done to them and no blame, no blameworthiness will be attached to God. Now, that uh, is very hard for most people to get their brain around. Because it feels contradictory. I don't think it is contradictory. It just for our finite minds and our limited experience, hard to see. And I'm with you in the hardness that we experience. And we were praying downstairs that this play on words sort of, I wonder, God, if a sermon about hardening would be used to break hardness. That a hard text to deal with would be used to break in right now to some of you. I mentioned in my prayer earlier, and and probably they'll hear me say this, that a a younger couple in this church uh, came up to me and introduced themselves a year or so ago to say that when I preached this from Romans 9, it was that that did the decisive saving work in their lives. And I just stood back in wonder that God in his absolute sovereignty would make that text a means by which somebody said, all right, I lay down the arms of trying to work for myself. I see it has to be totally 110% of God and I yield. 
I mean, that would be a wonderful thing if that happened tonight. I've been praying that it would and that it happened there in the service in the morning as well. Let me close like this. Um, When God draws uh, you and me to himself and opens our eyes that we might believe and trust him and love him and treasure him and own him as our, our Lord and Savior, when we realize that we have been separated out freely without God being in any way influenced to do it by something we commended to him, when we feel that our being taken as his child, that his son dying for us, his resurrection, that he's working everything together for our good, that all of that is totally undeserved. I say again what I said last week. We should be the humblest, most brokenhearted, happiest, most bold, most self-sacrificing, loving people on planet Earth. My, My prayer is that even if you can't see it, the wrestling with and the embracing of God's absolute sovereignty over all things, including your will, will sustain you in times when almost everything else is saying, this will only be a catastrophe. So don't walk with God here. Rather, you'd be able to say, no, you're sovereign. You're able No matter whose will seems to be opposed against me, you can triumph. Nothing can stand in your way. No human will can trump your will. I tell you, I think there's going to come into your lives sooner or later experiences where you're going to need that confidence. And I think, I pray, I hope that this truth, as difficult as it may seem, will be a means of God's making you strong. Oh, that God would grant us to make, as Peter says, our calling and our election sure by loving indiscriminately all peoples, and I say especially the Jewish people. The Jew first and also to the Greek stands yet today. If you have any contact with the Jewish people, if you know any Jewish friends, love them with all your might. Lay down your life for your Jewish friends that they might come to Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we as a church tremble before your sovereignty. We tremble with confidence that We have been made your own because there has been awakened in us a love to Christ and a trust in Christ. And we have seen the gospel not as foolishness, but as beauty and glory. Our life, our righteousness, our redemption, our wisdom. And I pray now, everyone would see it. Would you take the blindness away? Would you take the deafness away? 
Would you cause the table no longer to be a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution? But may every good thing in our life send us up to you in thanksgiving and not become an idol to us. And, oh, God, may we not bend our backs under legalism, trying to impress you or work for you or perform for you as though we could do anything to commend ourselves to your sovereign electing grace. Oh, God, grant, I pray, that instead we would simply receive and that we would make much now of your great grace, grace that is greater than all our sins.